Today's episode is sponsored by PopSEO.com. PopShop America has created a new learning center full of free resources to grow your creative business. If you're a maker, e-commerce shop, or blogger, visit pop-seo for eBooks, courses, and more. You can learn how to grow your reach on social media, how to maximize sales through the holidays, and even learn about shopping cart abandonment and automations like chatbots. Visit pop-seo.com to start your journey. Thank you so much, Pop SEO. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 140 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we are talking about running a wholesale distribution company with my guest, Brad Krieger. Brad is the president of Checker Distributors, a company his grandparents, Bob and Del Krieger, founded in 1948. Based in Maumee, Ohio, Checker is a leading distributor of quilting and sewing products. Independent quilt shops all over the United States and internationally order their inventory from Checker. Brad Krieger, welcome. Thanks, Abby. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. We met briefly at Quilt Market, and I'm really glad to be able to delve a little deeper and talk to you more about Checker and about your business. So your grandparents started this business back, as as we said, in 1948, and they were supplying zippers and thread and yarn and ribbon to stores in Ohio. And I wondered what their story was. Like, how did that happen? How did they get into the sort of notions business back then? Yeah. So um, my grandfather, um, Bob Krieger, he was a company salesperson for Coates and Clark's. And back then they were calling on a lot of department stores like JCPenney's, Woolworth, um, stores like that. And he would go in and all he could sell the uh, buyers in the, in the sewing department was Coates and Clark's brand. And as he was working with them, um, when he would place an order for him, it would take up to six weeks to get an order shipped from Coates and Clark's, which happened to be headquartered in Cleveland. So even in the area that he was focused on, like the Northwest Ohio area, it would even take six weeks back then. You know, there was no FedEx or UPS and um, their shipping systems just weren't the most advanced at that point. And as he got to know the buyers at the various stores better, he started asking them. He said, listen, if I could sell you my brand, but I could also offer you brand X and brand Y and brand Z and get those to you like next day shipping for just a very small upcharge, would you be interested in that? And, you know, the resounding response from all of the uh, buyers was, yes, we would definitely be interested in that. So he kind of took that idea. Um, he partnered up with one of his neighbors and they started this little company called Checker. Um, and they started buying other brands. So he would go in and do his sales calls for Coates and Clarks, but then he would also bring out, you know, a secondary briefcase and show them all the other brands that they carried. And he would start getting, um, additional business in addition to the Coates and Clarks. And, you know, that's really the same concept of what checker is today. You know, we're dealing primarily with very busy quilt shop owners, um, who don't have the time to meet with, you know, 50 to 100 sales reps on an ongoing basis. And they really need one good outlet where they can get, you know, thousands of different types of products. And that's really what Checker is today. Um, so, but from my grandfather's perspective, um, Coates and Clarks found out about what he was doing. I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, about, uh, I think it was about seven years later. Oh, wow. And it took him a while. Okay. Yeah, it took him a while. And so then they found out. And once they found out, he was obviously fired and he lost his primary job as the Coates and Clark salesperson. And he had to focus focus his time um, fully on Checker at that point. I see. So, and do you know how he chose or he and his neighbor chose the name Checker? Yes, um, that was actually my grandmother, Dell. Um, they developed an order pad that he would take in and um take the orders for all the different products and they would just check off. They would have their items listed on the order pad and the store owners would choose what they wanted and they would check them off. And they just kind of came up with the name, um, check with checker. And ah, that's just how it started. 
Okay. So it's not like playing checkers or like checked fabric. I thought of all these different reasons and none of them are accurate. Okay. So that makes sense. It's almost like when you order sushi, you know, you like when check off on the menu, which of these sushis you want. Okay. Yeah. That totally makes sense. All right. Neat. So, um, so quilt shops didn't exist back then. This was department stores he was calling on. Correct. Yep. Okay. And they were ordering all the notions and things because department stores back then had fabric area, you know, sections and patterns. And, you know, women would go to the department store to buy fabric and notions and patterns. Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Right. Yep. All right. And that's how it worked back then. Okay. Um, and then your father, Rob, came into the business. He was in the army. And then um, in 1971, he joined the business as well. He did. Yeah. So he came in 71 and, you know, the business was obviously very small back then also. And I believe, oh gosh, they had like less than 10 full-time employees at that point. So my dad came in, you know, learned the business kind of inside and out. And then he was sent on the road and he was out there establishing new accounts all through Ohio and Michigan and Indiana and various places. Um, And he really helped grow it from a small, very small operation to a much bigger operation through the seventies and eighties and into the nineties. And, uh, he was, yeah, he worked his butt off. I mean, he was constantly, constantly working. And, you know, when he wasn't working in the office, he was still working at home and he, uh, he really put in his dues to bring Checker into a much bigger operation than where it was when he started. And what do you remember? I mean, you know, you grew up in that household with him working on this business, growing this business. What do you remember, I mean, about it when you were a kid? What did you think about Checker and what did you think about his work? Um, he was, I mean, yeah, he was a workaholic. I mean, he he had to be. I mean, when you're growing a business like that, you know, and you're, he was second generation, but second generation from a very a small business. And he was always working, you know, a lot of stress. And, um, but, you know, I was around quite a bit, you know, I would, they would just because he was there so much. Um, I was having to go to the warehouse and stuff a lot when I was young and he would have, you know, various employees would even watch me while he was, um, working and, um, yeah, some pretty fond memories. There's actually people that work, for checker still to this day that used to babysit me when I was like five years old. <laughs> wow. So you would yeah. come in and they would watch you when you were little and now you're president of the company. Exactly. That's, yeah. I used, yeah, I used to um, ride around. They still tell stories about this. I used to ride around the aisles like on a big wheel and I would see employees kind of standing there talking and I would yell at them, you know, get to work or I'll have you fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So some of the guys back in the warehouse, um, they used to mess with me quite a bit. They would pack me in boxes and tape me up and they would throw me off the second level into boxes of batting and uh, all that kind of stuff. So if only we had iPhones back then so we could have gotten some video footage. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Um, oh my gosh. That is so funny. So, um, so as you got older, when you were a teenager, did you actually work at the warehouse or did you work in the office at all? Or was that not something you wanted? You know, there's some people who, you know, when they're growing up, they sort of rebel against the family business and don't want anything to do with it. How were you feeling as you got older? Well, in in high school, um, you know, in the summers I would do, I would pack orders, pull orders, you know, stock the shelves, do inventory counts, um, do some like accounting filing stuff like that. So I was always around it, but yeah, I, I wasn't, you know, when I was in high school and even in college, I wasn't firmly convinced that I was going to go work for the family business. So, um, I knew I wanted to get away after college and not live in Ohio right away. Um, I actually went to Miami university, which is based in Oxford, Ohio, and that's down near Cincinnati, kind of in the Southwestern portion of Ohio. And I was a business marketing major and a Spanish minor. And I always had the travel bug in me. My um, freshman summer of college, I was actually talking to my dad about potentially transferring out west to Colorado or Arizona or something like that just because I wanted to get out of Ohio. And we agreed that um, I would head to Spain for the summer because I always had a pretty good understanding of Spanish going back into high school. So I went to Spain my freshman summer and was a study abroad student for two months and got to travel Europe. Um, for another month after that, my freshman summer. 
And then my junior year of college, um, I actually went to Costa Rica for six months. It was a study abroad student in Costa Rica for six months. So really helped get some of the travel bug out of me. But um, after I graduated, I knew I didn't want to work for the family business right away. And my dad and I kind of had a mutual understanding that I wouldn't work for the family business right away. So I basically choosed where I wanted to live. And I had a lot of friends out in Colorado. So I moved out to Denver, Colorado, got my first job out there working for a big commercial printing company. And I did that for three years until I was a sales rep for them. And I did that for three years until they were bought out by a larger firm um, who had an existing Denver sales office. And, you know, my manager at the time told all the younger reps, like, look, you guys are going to eventually lose your jobs to these existing salespeople. So at that point, after being out of school for three years and working for a different company for three years, I did contact my dad and let him know that, look, I was probably going to lose my job. And um, I would either go work for another company or, you know, see if we wanted to look at potentially doing something for Checker at that point. And at that point, we didn't really have good coverage of Colorado or Western Nebraska, Western Kansas, Wyoming, the Black Hills of South Dakota, and Northern New Mexico. So I took over that territory as a sales rep for Checker. And it was pretty big, expansive geographical territory with, um, you know, there'd be times where you could drive 200 miles in between quilt shops in that area. Wow. But, uh, but uh, I did that for two and a half years and uh, more than doubled that territory in two and a half years. And then we had a, one of our local reps back in Ohio, Michigan, um, quit the business um, to move into a different industry. And at that point, my dad and the sales manager at the time called and asked if I'd be interested in moving back home and taking over that territory. So uh, thought about it for a couple of days, but that's what I ended up doing. Okay. All right. I see. So do you think it was valuable to start as a sales rep within Checker? In other words, you know, I think some people who come into a family business, you know, they could start out in the head office, you know, sort of in a executive kind of role because, you know, look, your dad owns the business. You can kind of do whatever you want. Right. But you kind of started as a road rep and, um, you know, were out there basically with your suitcase, you know, selling samples to gold shops and, um, uh, you know, kind of getting down and dirty into it. And I just wondered whether that experience, those years, um, you felt like there was some value in that for you. Um, absolutely. I, I think for anybody that's eventually going to try to get into management of a business to start in sales is where you need to start because you learn the products, you learn what your company's selling, you learn your customer base by meeting with them every day. Um, you learn the positive things that your company's doing. You also learn about the shortcomings that your company has. And really, I mean, sales is the one job that you can really learn fully encompassing, get a fully encompassing view of what your company is doing well and what you guys need to work on. So yeah, I mean, starting out in the, plus starting being in two different territories, working in the West and seeing what it's like for Chucker to have to sell out West and then coming back and being a sales rep for another two and a half years back in Ohio, Michigan and Indiana, it was, um, it was very different because, you know, with our headquarters being right in Ohio, all that business in Ohio and Michigan, Indiana was very easy. It was good established business for us. Um, just being, you know, one day shipping to all those accounts. So being out West and, you know, having to, you know, convince people to buy from checker, which was a three days shipping zone out there. And we had some competitors that were a little more close geographically. Um, it was a different type of sale, but it was really good to learn, you know, both areas and what checker had to do to succeed in both of those areas. Right. And what, around what years was this like roughly? Um, I graduated college in 1999 and then moved to Denver that year. So when I started with Checker, I believe it was 2002. And so then I was out there, um, with Checker in the Colorado territory for two and a half years. And then I moved back to, I actually moved back to Ohio in 2005. So then was a sales rep back in Ohio, Michigan from 2005 through 2007. And then in 2007, I noticed we needed some help on the internal operations. Um, there were some things that we weren't doing right. Our, um, our buying was kind of out of whack. We were over inventoried on things that weren't selling well. And, you know, I approached my dad and I said, look, you need some help on the inside. Um, we've got a lot of stuff that isn't selling well. We're closing it out and not making money. We're losing money on it. And there were other things like our freight programs that we weren't really managing very well. And, 
Um, he thought about it for a few days and he said, yeah, you're right. It probably is time for you to come in. I see. Yeah. Right. So you yeah. were able to sort of, um, having experienced it and having experienced what it's, what it was like, you know, selling to quilt shops, you were able to notice inefficiencies and then, and then see where you could be of service to the company as a whole, sort of on a, on a bigger, broader level. Um, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. I see. And that was also sort of the, in the early 2000s, quilt shops were, this was before the internet and before e-commerce really had taken off. And so quilt shops were maybe in a somewhat healthier retail environment than they are now. Um, and so I, I don't know whether you feel like that was the case at that time, but um, but it's it's shifted a lot in the last, let's say, 10 years. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially in the last, you know, three or four years. Yeah. Okay. And we'll, we'll get back to that in a little while, but, um, I also want to talk though, before we do that about the pivot to serving quilt shops, because as we mentioned earlier, when your grandparents were in this business, um, they were supplying to department stores. And then of course, department stores stopped selling, uh, fabric and notions and patterns. Um, and then, you know, like in the maybe late 1980s, early 1990s, you know, quilt shops, quilt shops didn't exist. And then they sort of came onto the scene and I'm guessing at a certain point, Checker must have pivoted to quilt shops, um, and realized that if we don't serve them, we're not going to have customers anymore. We're going to have to to change and and start really catering to quilting, um, because really it was prior to then more garment sewing. It must have been, um, and then and now it's it's mostly quilting. Um, so I don't know if you know that history, but if you do, if you could talk a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying um, is absolutely correct as far as like actual dates and, you know, the timeline sure. of when, you know, that full pivot was made, you know, I'd have to get back to you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's absolutely what we had to do. The fact that the department stores um, started getting away from it, but those that stayed in it, you know, this this was kind of like the birth time of the Joanne Fabrics and other companies like that, too. But if you're a small distributor like Checker was at that point, these big companies, they wanted massive discounts. And distributors don't make huge margins to begin with. And if you're trying to sell to a, you know, a big chain store, you're not going to be able to make any money, you know, selling at the discounts that they demand. So yeah, my dad and grandma at the time noticed, um, the checker had to make that pivot and that's what they did. Mm -hmm. Right. And from the quilt shops perspective, it's just much easier to do one-stop shopping. So they're going to get the checker catalog. They can order lots and lots of different products from lots and lots of different purveyors all at once. And so it's just a much easier way to, to reach them all and, um, and for them to shop, um, for sure. So essentially like from a, from me, like as a pattern designer, um, you know, basically I'm selling it to checker at less than wholesale. Um, and my hope is that the, the, the volume will make it up basically that checker will sell so many of them that it makes it worth my time. It makes it worth my while. Well, it's the volume is one thing, but it's the exposure, which is the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, checker we've, you know, we've got approximately 7,400 active accounts that we're selling to. And, you know, we've got a very captive email audience when we do our email campaigns and, you know, we send out, Oh, um, sale flyers with what's new publications to, you know, we print 10,000 of those and send them out to customers. Um, our website traffic on a daily average, we're getting close to 4,000 visitors daily, which is, you know, mainly, um, B2B businesses. So getting your products in checkers, um, realm of products gives your brand instant, um, visibility to just a huge market of B2B quilt shops and other types of businesses out there. And so you said you had 7,400 active accounts, but there's not 7,400 quilt shops. So you must have other kinds of shops that order from Checker. Yeah. Um, the quilt shops make up about 85% of our total business. So, you know, our, our business is still geared towards the quilt shops. I mean, that's 85% of the pie there. And the other 15% would be made up of online retailers, um, small manufacturers, long arm services. I mean, we even sell to people like, you know, dry cleaners that offer their own sewing, you know, and embroidery services within their shops. They'll buy thread and stuff like that from Checker. Okay, got it. All right, I see. I want to take a minute now to talk about our sponsor, Pop SEO. 
Over the years, Pop Shop America and Pop SEO has worked with thousands of makers and creative businesses. Founder Brittany Bly says that for her, it's important to help creative entrepreneurs grow in a way that's going to truly bring them a full-time income. And that is online. So they focused on not just creating a great festival of handmade that takes place in person, but also creating a treasure trove of free resources for creatives to grow digitally. At popseo.com, you can find information about how to increase your reach on Facebook, do affiliate marketing, and also find the best craft fairs across the country. You'll learn more about influencer marketing and SEO and a whole lot more. Their latest course launches on April 1st, and readers can sign up now. It's called Start and Scale Your Etsy, and they're taking a deep dive into Etsy SEO, marketing, product descriptions, and more. So you'll work together step-by-step, starting with all the basics to make sure that nothing is overlooked. And then you'll dig into Etsy page rankings, shopper habits, coupon codes, promoted listings, and a whole lot more. Readers can find out all about the course and register at pop-seo.com slash courses. From now through April 1st, 2019, the course is half off. Shoppers spent almost $3 billion on the Etsy platform in 2016, and over 80% of shoppers are repeat purchasers. So this is a shopping platform that creative e-commerce businesses should not ignore. But you don't have to take the course to stay connected with Pop SEO. They send out free monthly ebooks and offer business tips and even give away lots of free goodies to their readers. So head over to pop-seo.com to check it out. Thank you so much, Pop SEO. And now back to my conversation with Brad. Um, okay, and then in 1984, the business expanded a little bit more by adding fabrics. So you can also order fabrics from a lot of different fabric manufacturers from Checker. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, fabric's about 35% of our overall business right now. And as far as the distributors go, we have the most complete uh, portfolio in the industry by a pretty wide margin. Um, there's a lot of major fabric brands. I mean, we pretty much have most of the major fabric brands out there minus a handful. And, you know, we've added some really big ones in the last few years, like Hoffman and Riley Blake, um, that have come to checker and we're the only distributor in the U S that they deal with. But, um, there's others too, you know, Robert Kaufman, we're their primary distributor, timeless treasures, um, Wilmington, we're their only distributor in the U S that's a very big line for us. But right down the line, I mean, Michael Miller and Shannon Cuddle and P&B primarily just works with us. Um, and then we've got, you know, we even have Maywood and Henry Glass and Camelot, Entertex and the rest of them. So, yeah, I mean, Fabric's a huge part of our um, overall portfolio and it's really growing. Um, last year, was Fabric was our biggest growth, growth category in the entire company. And one of the nice things about ordering fabric from a distributor is that you don't need to meet the minimum order amounts for each of the fabric manufacturers. So um, opening an account with a manufacturer, you're going to have a minimum order and it could be quite high, you know, in the thousands of dollars of that, just that manufacturer's bolts. Um, So this way you can kind of diversify a little bit more if you're a smaller shop, for example, and um, just order one or two bolts or just a few bolts from, you know, multiple different manufacturers if if you order through Checker. Absolutely. And and the other thing about that, too, is our turn time on orders. So, you know, pretty much every day of the week, we're getting any orders that are placed before 1 p.m. Eastern. um, We're getting them out the door the same day. And, you know, I'll use like Kona Solids for an example. Um, A shop is placing their weekly notions order with us, but they realize that they need a bolt of Kona Black and they need a bolt of Kona White. Well, if they were going to go direct on that, they may have to order five or six bolts and it may take three or four weeks to get to them. Um, if you order it from Checker, it's going to ship out that day and you're going to have your bolts, you know, depending on how close you are to us within a day or two or three or four days. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, thanks for clarifying that. So, um, okay. So you added fabric to the mix and then also um, this team of sales reps. Um, so if you can explain how 
your sales reps work or how that's that that works for for companies. So some companies have in-house sales reps where they sort of manage it themselves. And then some companies um, sort of work with sales reps that are not uh, on their own team. They're sort of independent companies. The sales reps are their own independent companies. And then sometimes some companies work with Checker and just have Checker be their sales reps or Checker handle that. Is that right? Yeah. So I believe our current number of sales reps is 22. And of the 22, seven of them are 1099 reps, meaning they, they carry Checker, but they also have a couple of other additional lines, like maybe a couple of fabric lines that they sell. And then the other 15 reps are full-time Checker company reps that they only work for Checker. Okay. I see. So 1099 meaning they're like contractors. Correct. Okay. But, but in their mix, you know, checker, checker would make up the majority of their income mm-hmm. that they're making also. Okay. Yeah. And they have a territory and they travel around and, um, and visit shops and show them the merchandise. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and one thing we still hear from shops, some shops, shops today is, um, you know, well, I don't need to see fabric from checker. I just order my notions from checker. Well, you know, with all of the lines that we've added, especially in the last few years, there's always going to be a few lines that a checker rep has that the shops aren't either seeing the direct rep frequently or they may not see that direct rep at all. And, you know, to, to just turn it off and say, I don't buy any fabric from checker. I really think that that's something that shops should think about because going back to, you know, my grandfather's philosophy when he started the company is shop owners are busy. And if you've got somebody there from Checker that can rifle through, you know, six, seven, eight lines for you really quick, if not more, if there's others that you aren't seeing very frequently, that saves them a lot of time. And it's not like our prices are different. For the most part, we're same as direct pricing on these lines. So, you know, the Checker reps that are out there traveling with all these lines, the fabric lines, it's a really big asset to the shop owners. And a lot of the shop owners are realizing that. They're realizing that they're very busy and, they got to focus on their classes and in-store events and things like that to keep people coming. So they're utilizing the checker reps quite a bit more for fabric. And that's why our fabric sales are really increasing. Okay. And do you think that that model is still really relevant? The model of having somebody come physically to your store with physical samples and show them to you versus having like an online, I mean, I know you have an online portal where people can come and, um, you know, shops can come and, and place their orders online as well. But, um, you know, it's, it's labor intensive and it's costly to have people out there traveling the road, um, to, to do this. And, you know, you must feel like it's, it's worthwhile. Will it continue to be worthwhile? Do you think down the road? Yeah. I mean, you know, when you look at our total order volume, there's something like 85 or 90% of our total orders are coming in via the website these days. But when you actually get into the dollar volume, um, it's somewhere like around 65% of our total dollars are coming in through the website. And then the other 35% would be coming through rep generated orders. So um, yeah, it's still worthwhile. And you know, shop owners, when they want to see the new collections, if they want to see 10 new fabric lines at once, it, it is a little bit more difficult for them to go through the website and follow up with what's new on everything and to be able to see the actual fabric lines in front of them with the accompanying um, free projects or patterns that go with it. Um, it. It is still relevant today. Okay. And you think it's going to remain relevant? In other words, it's not going to decline in relevancy, do you feel like, over the next, let's say, five years or 10 years? Well, I mean, there, there's definitely some accounts, you know, that we hear from that say, you know, I don't need a sales rep to call on me for whatever reason. And, you know, these are people that are very proficient knowing what they're looking for. You know, they they know that, you know, I buy this brand and I buy this brand and I buy this brand and I want to see what, what new they have. And I only focus on these types of things. Well, they may be self-sufficient to go through the websites, Checkers website and whoever else they're buying from. Um so, yeah, I mean, some stores or some accounts are finding themselves to be self-sufficient, but there's still plenty of stores out there that like a sales rep calling on them that um, they are still, they're still relevant at this point, for sure. And will a sales rep call on an online sh- store? So a store that doesn't have a brick and mortar presence, has never had a brick and mortar presence, but is just an online store. And if so, 
how large of an online store do you need to be to qualify, I guess, to have a sales rep come come to visit you? Yeah, our reps definitely call on um, online retailers. And, you know, I, I guess there's no prerequisite as far as volume because we never really know. You know, somebody can open up and start small and then they kind of grow as their business grows and they, they decide that they want to see sales reps. But our reps will reach out to just about anybody that's put into their territory and, and tell them what they can do, tell them what they can bring them. And basically the shop owner decides at that point whether or not they want them to come in and see them. Um, but yeah, we don't have like a, we, we don't say, Hey, this account does a minimum $10,000 a year, go see them. It's really up to the rep to, to make those calls and find out if the shop uh, wants that somebody to come call on them. Okay. Because I have heard from some um, online shops that will say, not from Checker, but from other, you know, direct the manufacturers of fabric, for example, that, you know, the sales rep won't call on me because I'm an Etsy shop or something like that. You know, they just don't think I'm important, I guess, or something. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. And that's where it's, I mean, the direct reps primarily are going to focus on, you know, a level business, you know, if you're ranking accounts as far as volume, like an A, B, C, D, E level account as far as sales volume, they're going to focus mainly on the A's and B's and, you know, and some of the C's. And where we really encourage our reps is, you know, they're, they're buying, these stores are ordering from us every week, if not multiple times a week. And they're ordering thread and they're ordering notions and books and patterns and everything else. And we let our reps know that, hey, when you go in there, you're not just showing them one or two fabric lines. You've got a lot of stuff to show them. So what might not seem like an important call to a direct rep that's looking for like the bigger dollars when they're making their visits, um, it could turn into a fruitful call for a checker rep just because of the variety of products that we offer. Mm-hmm. Okay, makes sense. And so, and then in 2000, um, checker went international, sort of expanded outside of the United States, began selling in other countries. And I know there are distributors who specialize, you know, in each of these other countries. So there's a, there are several Canadian distributors, for example, for quilting fabrics and notions. And then there's there's distributors in, in Europe for sewing and the UK and Asia, and there's several in Australia, but you're sort of competing with those by, you know, kind of um, being in those markets. And I wondered um, what was the, the sort of theory behind sort of jumping into that? Yeah. Um, you know, that goes back to, gosh, when I was just kind of getting started. Right. So, you know, this was stuff that, you know, my dad and at the time we had an international sales manager that really got us going um, internationally. But it had to do with um, customer demand. You know, we would be at these quilt markets and international stores. People would come up from Australia, Canada, Europe and just look at our booth and kind of marvel at it and say, oh, my gosh, you are, you know, you're one your one business that offers all of these types of products. You know, we don't have any distributor like that in Australia or in Europe or in Canada that has the variety of um, brands that you guys carry. And they would say, you know, we would love to open an account with you. And so there was a lot of internal planning on how can we make this work where we can develop um, freight programs into these countries that, these shops can buy goods from us and still land them in their countries to where it's affordable for them to make sense. And, you know, it started small. And I think when we started with Canada, we were shipping one day a week. What we would do is, you know, say if 10 people had orders from us over the course of a week, you know, one day the following week, we'd combine all their orders together and ship it across as one consolidated shipment. So they would benefit on the the weight volume of, you know, everybody's orders combined. And, you know, fast forward to today and we're shipping five days a week to Canada on a similar type of freight program, a consolidated freight program where everybody's orders, they all benefit from the volume of everybody else's orders to bring their freight rates down. Mm-hmm. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, they can order from us, ship it into their countries. It still makes total financial uh, sense for them, even though they're paying freight and duty into their countries where they don't have anybody like us that offers the full, um, huge selection of all the notions, books, patterns, fabric, and everything else. So that's really how it started. And, you know, today I personally um, negotiated very hard on behalf of the international quilt shop owners for Canada and for Europe to establish some unbelievable freight programs like um, European accounts. If, if, you know, if you're, if they're in the EU and they order from Checker, um, we ship their orders out and they get their orders in two to three days. Wow. So, 
we actually can ship to, I don't know, Cologne, Germany quicker than we can ship to Los Angeles, California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and even with the freight over there and the duty into it, they're still landing these orders at a very um, attractive price point to where it makes sense for their businesses to order from us all the way over in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I guess maybe the quilting culture in some of these markets is picking up or strange. I mean, I had um, a podcast guest, um, Katerina Rochella, not long ago, and she lives in, um, in Serbia. And she was talking about, she's a designer for art gallery fabrics. And she was talking about how, where she lives, um, basically there is no word for quilting. Um, like there, the, that word, the idea of quilting doesn't exist at all. And, um, and there's like a word for patchwork, but really there's no culture of quilting. Um, but maybe in some of these markets, uh, it's starting to, to pick up. Yeah. And, and I've personally been over into some international shops and I mean, typically they're going to be a little bit smaller in size than what you see in the U S um, they don't have quite the selection. I mean, from what I've personally seen is they'll typically focus on, you know, a couple different styles that their shop carries, you know, if it's modern or it's boutiques or, you know, they'll do a couple versus you can go into some of the bigger shops here in the U S and they're going to have, boutiques and they're going to have children's and they're going to have reproductions and they're going to have florals and modern and everything else. From what I've seen in some of the European stores, they don't have the space to carry a huge different uh, selection of everything. So they really focus on like a specific look for their shop. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about the total inventory? I know you mentioned like they would come to Quilt Market and see the booth and see, you know, the sort of total variety and be wowed. So um, do you know how many items are in the inventory at Checker now? I do. Um, just about 125,000 active SKUs. And it's from just a, a little bit shy of a thousand different brands, suppliers that we carry. Okay. All right. Just to give people kind of a sense of that. And um, what is needed to open an account? So if people are out there and they're saying, oh, I would like to, you know, add some of this to, let's say, my online shop, for example, and begin to order from Checker, um, what do they need to have to be eligible to open an account? Um, well, they've got to have, you know, a business license and tax ID. And the first order that they place with us, I think, is a minimum of $300. And annually, they have to maintain at least $1,200. But, um, you know, in this day and age of all the e-commerce outlets popping up, you know, our accounts, our accounting department has gotten more selective on who opens accounts because when somebody applies, you know, we're asking them to list on their application. Are they a brick and mortar store? Are they e-commerce? Are they both? Are they brick and mortar plus e-commerce? Are they a manufacturer? Are they a long arm quilt service company? Or are they a nonprofit? I mean, those are typically where our different accounts come into. But we are going out and looking. If they say that they're e-commerce, we go out and try to check their sites and see, are they relevant to our industry? Meaning, are they carrying other quilting and sewing products? Or are they just somebody that's in the, I don't know, automotive parts business? But they found out that Creative Grids is something good that they can sell on Amazon. And, and you know, that's what they want. And we're, we're really trying to weed out those types of online sellers for trying to keep it um, tailored into people that are truly involved in our industry. I see. Okay. Yeah. Right. The, the Amazon resellers are a whole different uh, ball oh, game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's things where like, you know, our products, some of our creative grid, you know, the creative grid ruler brand is a brand that we own and it has a map uh, minimum advertised pricing policy on it. And, you know, I was just notified a couple months ago that some of the creative grid rulers showed up on mass drop and mass drop was doing a, um, you know, a re- reduced price on a bundle of rulers and we don't sell to mass drop. And, you know, we're just trying to figure out how that happened. How did it get there? So, you know, we, and we've sent them letters, take our products down and, you know, you don't really get good responses from them. And, um, but that's what we're trying to prevent is, you know, who are these people that are trying to open accounts and, you know, if they open it under one name, do they have an alias where they sell under something else? And are really trying to weed those types of um, customers out. Right. Yeah, gosh, that does get sticky. Um, sticky situations can arise for sure. Interesting. Um, and the internet allows you to sort of 
see everything happening in a way that um, maybe some of these shady, shady things were happening before, but they were harder to find out about. But now, you know, everything's under everybody's view, um, which is interesting. So um, can you talk a little bit too about people uh, people, so people like me who are uh, pattern designers, or let's say you developed a notion, um, for example, and you have a product that you would like to be distributed. So you'd love to have, you know, check or carry it in these catalogs, send it in these email blasts, get these sales reps out there, um, you know, se- uh, selling it to these quilt shops and get that exposure and the volume and all of those wonderful things we talked about. So how should someone go about, um, you know, getting their product considered to be carried by Checker? Yeah, um, we've got a couple senior level buyers here um, where the new product submissions come into them. And what they're looking for, like if, if it's a new pattern company, um, they don't want somebody that just has like one pattern or, or two patterns. They're looking for somebody that's got a pretty good selection. Um, things that they're looking at is, you know, what do the, what do the pattern covers look like? You know, do they look professional? Are the instructions really accurate? Um, you know, do they exhibit at shows? Do they have a good social media presence? Are any of their designs published in magazines? Um, are they designing fabric also, or do their patterns work with specific fabric lines, you know, preferably lines that Checker's carrying? Um, you know, they don't necessarily need to have all of those things, but certain components of those would help because we do have a very wide selection of patterns and, you know, unfortunately we can't have everybody's everything. It has to make sense. And, um, you know, I, I always often joke that the most popular person at quilt market is the checker pattern buyer <laughs> because we have, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people come up looking for her, um, wanting to submit their patterns to her. Uh-huh. But, uh, but that's, you know, that's one thing as far as the patterns go. And then as far as notions, um, you know, pretty similar concept. If, if it's something that has nice packaging and it's nice quality and there is some already established demand for it and, you know, the owner of, of the product is um, able to keep up with Checker's demand. I mean, that's another big thing. You know, we've gotten into some relationships with people that um, we've brought their brand on board and, you know, we start sending them those POs and they're like, Oh geez, I can't fund your POs. Can you, can you prepay me for these? And you know, that's not something that we want to get into. If you want to do business with us, you've got to be prepared to uh, satisfy the, the demand as it comes. Right. So just says two, two, two quick things of clarification. One is that often you have to send a sample and at least in my experience. So I will disclose that I have several products carried through checker. And, um, in my experience, I had to send a sample and the sample was, you know, sent to be considered before, um, the buyer decided that they did indeed want to carry my products. So that's number one. Um, and then that way they can check and look at the packaging and read the instructions and all of that. And number Number two, I was going to say is these POs, that's a purchase order. And so you never know when they're going to come, right? You're just sitting there on a Thursday and boom, a purchase order comes into your inbox and it says, you know, we need 50 of this and 75 of that. And you need to fulfill that order. You know, usually I send it out the next day or maybe a day and a half later or something like that. Um, And so, you know, you can't then say, oh, well, I have to you know, order those items and I can't pay for them or, or whatever. You actually have to have the inventory in stock, ready to go. Um, you know, I might need to fold and bag some of the patterns or something like that, but basically they're sitting here and I'm ready to go and, and can, you know, fill that order right away because that means that someone on the other end at Checker is waiting for them. And so they need to be um, sent out. And then once they're there, I send an invoice and then I get paid, you know, a little while afterward. So that's kind of how it works. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, like I said, we've got about a thousand different vendors and, you know, we, you know, we hear from customers with, you know, something's out of stock and something's on back order. They're always going to assume, oh, that's Checker's fault. And, you know, sometimes it is our fault. Sometimes our buyers didn't buy enough or a certain product had a crazy, crazy week of demand, you know, outside the norm. But a lot of our issues when we're out of stock on things is we may be working with a small pattern company and they're on vacation for a week or two weeks and we've got POs in and they're just not shipping anything for two weeks. And, you know, if they're not shipping it, we obviously don't have it. And then, you know, you also run into things where even the bigger companies like the Clovers or Ulfas of the world may have a, um, 
I don't know, product defect and they're out of stock on something for a month or two or their demand just went through the roof and their mills can't produce it fast enough. So that's just something that, you know, the customer's got to keep in mind when you've got close to a thousand vendors with 125,000 SKUs, I would like to say that everything is in stock and available to ship every day at all times. But the reality of it is that's just not reality. Right. Okay. Um, let's talk a little bit about fabric. Um, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk recently about oversaturation of fabric on the market, quilting fabric I'm talking about now. Um, you know, we've really seen a, a pickup in the sort of the number of collections that come out, how quickly they come out, uh, how, you know, how frequently. So instead of maybe coming out in the fall and the spring, now they're coming out four times a year. So we, you know, coming out in the winter and also in the summer. And then, each collection has so many SKUs. It makes it very difficult for a shop to order all of those SKUs and have the complete collection in stock. And um, there's just so many fabric companies as well producing it. It's just kind of this surge. And there's a lot of talk about like, we can't keep up. There's just no way. And then we start seeing these closures of some companies seemingly. Um, so I wondered if you have an opinion about that. Do you, do, you, do you observe that happening? Do you think there's going to be a contraction? Is there a contraction? Are we already seeing it? You know, we carry, as far as fabric brands that actually do the line, you know, the collections four or five times a year. I mean, we've got roughly 30 companies that we carry. And when I look at our sales year over year the last few years, I mean, we're up you know, volume wise with all of them other than just, you know, less than a handful are down in volume. So, I mean, to say it's oversaturated from our perspective, it doesn't seem like it is. Although, you know, I, I do hear that from people, you know, there is a lot of kind of copycat lines that go out there. You know, somebody comes out with a coffee line and then the next season you see a similar vendor have a line that looks almost identical to it or, you know, with various Christmas lines that definitely happens. But, um, I, you know, most of the fabric companies that I communicate with seem to be doing well. I mean, there, there might be one or two that, you know, are on tough times right now, but I don't think it's like a crisis by any means. Okay. And can you speak a little bit? I know there was a, a blog post and um, Free Spirit just announced just a few weeks ago that, you know, they are no longer, Jaftex, which is the parent company now of Free Spirit, is no longer going to have that brand carried by Checker. They're going to just use their own in-house sales reps and sell it that way. And they're not going to have their fabric carried uh, anymore by Checker. Um, and they made this sort of very public announcement. So I, I wasn't sure whether you um, had thoughts about that or sort of um, an opinion about, about that decision. Yeah. Um, I just being honest, I wasn't too happy to see that publicly. And I did let them know that. Um, I think it could have been accomplished by just saying they made a business decision to sell direct only and kind of leave it at that. But um, there was, they have a variety of reasons of doing that. And I really think that the main reason was when they bought Free Spirit, Free Spirit came with an existing sales force of 20 or 25 sales reps. And then the owners, the new owners of Free Spirit also had their own existing sales force of 40 or 50 reps that um, carry some other lines that they represent. And they gave free spirit to those other existing reps back at the fall quilt market. So now they essentially have like 60 or 70 direct reps that are carrying free spirit. And I really think that that's the primary reason why they made that decision. Um, it's because they've got so many direct reps out there. They figured, Hey, we don't need checker anymore. But you know, there was something said on that blog post about this is going to benefit the international customers right? because check, because checker was selling internationally. And I think that that is absolutely incorrect. Um, the, the service that checker provides the international customers is, you know, now that you take Checker out of the mix, if you're an account in Australia or Canada, you are forced to buy from that international distributor and you have no other resource to get that fabric line. So what does that mean? You know, you've got to pay whatever price they're going to charge you and inevitably the price is going to go up. So if I'm a shop owner in Australia or Germany or wherever else, I've only got to buy it from this one source and they're going to charge me $10 a yard or ten fifty a yard. You got to pay that price. So when you put it out at your shop in, in one of those countries, you now got you have to sell it for over twenty dollars a yard. Right. And mm -hmm. the consumers in those countries look at this and they say, Well, geez, these prices are insane. <laughs> and you know, the other side of the coin there is, you know, they looked at us and said, Oh, checker's a problem internationally, but what about the online retailers that are based here in the US? 
So if you're if you're that consumer in Australia and you know that what the price you have to pay at the shop, if you can go online to one of the dot coms here in the US and you want to buy, I don't know, 10 yards of whatever fabric brand, ship it all the way over, you can do that and land it cheaper than what your local quilt shop can provide it to you at. Right. So I really think that that was um, taking a step backwards for them as far as the way that uh, business is going for the entire world, not just our industry these days. I mean, Checkers worked extremely hard to make um, make us a huge resource for international customers. And we've put in um, unbelievable freight programs and are able to la- give them a huge selection of items um, that they can land at a reasonable cost. And, and it helps c- keep their distributors honest also in regards to pricing and um I've had several, several international accounts reach out to me um, about their dismay about that decision. And um, and some of them have said, look, we only buy fabric from Checker anymore. So I guess we're not going to carry that brand anymore. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I and yeah. OK. That's it. Yeah. It'll have that consequence and, and it'll sort of play out over time, um, perhaps. Um, interesting. And I wondered also if you could talk a little bit about um, quilt market. So obviously checkers at quilt market, that's where you and I uh, met. And um, I'm sure you've probably been at quilt market all along, potentially from quilt market's beginning. I don't know, but I'm guessing. Um, And so, which was uh, what, 1979, I think. So um, my question for you is around how your presence at quilt market has changed over time and whether the the booth is as big as it once was, bigger now, smaller now, whether the same kind of business is being done at Quilt Market that was being done there five years ago, 10 years ago, um, and sort of what role the trade show is playing in your business now. Yeah, so um, yeah, our booth size, like pretty much everybody else has decreased um, kind of significantly. I mean, if you go backwards, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, Checker had as big as 20 booths at every show. And now we're down to 10 booths. So it's about 50% smaller. Um, And and what we were doing before, you know, and this is really before like the e-marketing and digital flipbooks of all the new products and everything, we started promoting those heavily. We would literally bring every notion that, that came out in between the quilt markets and pretty much every notion and put them up on all these huge kiosks. And it was a huge undertaking, um, getting all that stuff down there. And, um, I'm very data driven. You know, we make most of our decisions here based on data and stats. And, and I started looking at all this, I don't know, four years ago. And, you know, I had some of our people here say, I said, listen, scan everything that we're bringing to quilt market. And after we get back, I want you to look at all those items that we put up there and let me know how many of them registered even one single sale. And I remember the first time we did that, um, the results came back that there was like 72% of the items we brought to Quilt Market didn't even register a single sale. And when was this? This was so, this is, you're talking single sale made during the show. Correct. Okay. And, Correct. and this is a couple of years ago you did this study. Yeah. The first time I did that, I, it was probably four years ago. Okay. Right. And um, so, you know, the buyers want to bring everything. And the buyer's like, oh, we got to have everybody's everything. And I said, okay, well. My data is telling me that over 70% of the things we brought that were very expensive to bring there. I don't know if you've heard of the bills that you paid to get the freight there and just to bring the things from the back to where the convention center to your booth. It is not cheap. Yeah, it's and extremely expensive. Extremely expensive to get the freight onto, onto the show floor and into your booth. Yes. And not to mention all the prep time that you do, you know, setting up all those kiosks and then re then taking them down and packing everything, getting it down there and then reconstructing everything once you get there. So, so we cut it down, um, after that initial, um, study and then we, you know, we went, uh, I don't know, about 25% smaller on our kiosks. And then we did the data at the next show. And at that, at that show, there was like 60% of the stuff that we brought still didn't even register a single sale. So, we do that data analysis and everything we bring to quilt market um, at every show now. And really, you know, my buyers understand it now and they really focus on truly what they feel are the hottest um, products that we really need to show when we're there. And even by doing that, I mean, we've cut it down significantly. There's still, I think on the last show, like 45% of what we brought didn't even register a single sale. So yeah, that's interesting. I mean, when I, what, have you looked at the 
list of buyers. So after Quilt Market, if you exhibit at Quilt Market, Quilt, Quilt Sing sends you a spreadsheet, right? And it's all the people who were there, all the buyers who had registered and who came to Quilt Market. Um, and I don't know if you've looked at that list and done any analysis of who those buyers actually are. Yeah, we do. And I mean, basically our customer service department looks at it and looks for any um, account or any stores that aren't checker accounts. And then from there, you know, we, we reach out to them, send them a new account packet and see if they want to open an account with us and tell them all about checker. Okay. That's what we do with that. Yeah. It's interesting. I've been going through that list and, um, uh, it has been interesting to look at and it's, I'm not completely done. Um, so I can't say I have uh, accurate data at the moment, but uh, it, it looks to me as though, you know, maybe, maybe 60% of that, of those people actually are buyers from quilt shops. So actually, mm-hmm. you know, have, a shop that they can um, outfit with, you know, a, a significant amount of, of fabric and notions and patterns and things like that. Um, and the remaining 40% are not. They are people who have a business that does not require them to purchase, you know, a significant amount of any of those things, um, even though they do have a buyer's badge. So either they're, they're a very tiny manufacturer or they own a store that's a completely different kind of store or they're actually just an artist um, who somehow ended up with a buyer's badge. Um, or, you know, they're just people who don't who, who don't actually qualify as a quilt shop owner. Um, and it's it's interesting. So. So, you know, the question sort of is how much how much are those leads worth? You know, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just being honest, it's really my sales management team that handles that function. Um, I, I, you know, I would have to check in with them to see, you know, out of, out of the people that we identify that are truly quilt shops or online businesses, um, that we reach out to how many pan out to becoming new accounts. I mm-hmm. don't really know yeah. how that works on our That's end. a good question. Um, okay. But, yeah. But yeah, on the quilt market side though, um, you know, I'm not talking all doom and gloom on this. Sure. That, that, that's just, as far as how we, you know, have decreased our booth size, it was based on, hey, here's some data. Let's make some informed decisions on how we're going to, you know, decrease our booth size and where we're going to decrease it. But we didn't really decrease our fabric table area. Um, when we're at Quilt Market, over 80% of the total volume and sales that we do at the show comes from the fabric tables. And at this past Houston, um, we were actually blindsided by how busy we were. We had a lot of customers, I mean, to the point where we didn't have enough manpower to keep up with everybody that was coming. So that was actually our best sales volume as far as what we booked at the show in five years. Wow. Houston. Houston 2018. And, you know, there, there was a lot of international customers that came, you know, like you mentioned, we, we were going, we've been going to the CH, uh, the stitches show in the UK and the H and H show in Germany. And we've really attracted a, a bigger audience of international customers. And a lot of them do make the trip to Houston. So these are people that have, you know, opened checker accounts in the last couple of years and they really see the value in checker. So, We've, um, we're bringing more staff to Kansas City, hoping Kansas City is going to be kind of a repeat of what Houston 2018 was. Um, but the other thing about Quilt Market from our perspective is it's not just about what you book as far as sales at the show. You know, every show we're opening between 15 to 25 new accounts that we meet at the show. And then we also do schoolhouses for like our new creative grid rulers. And sometimes we'll do schoolhouses on how to properly navigate the checker website and, you know, using it to your, to its maximum capabilities and things like that. And, and our buyers always find new vendors at the show. So it's, it's still valuable for us. In our Absolutely. Just, yeah. 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 And meeting people in person never loses its value and seeing products in person never loses its value. Um, so I, you know, that's never going to go away. That's always going to be, um, something that people need and want, um, for sure. And those in-person connections, um, are irreplaceable. So, um, so, you know, for sure. Um, okay. And, um, I just wanted to ask about your kids if I could. Um, I know you have, um, you have two kids and I wondered whether, and they're, they're very young, but I wondered whether you have hopes for them to someday do what you did, which is to say, take over this business, which clearly you find to be really engaging and, um, interesting and exciting. And I just wondered whether that's something that you, you hope for them. 
Um, yeah, well, I would love that. Um, my son Grant is only three years old, and then my daughter Callie is only a year and a half. So uh, we're talking a ways away before yeah. that, that would happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course. And um, but yeah, I mean that would be amazing if I could pass it down to a fourth generation. It's just uh, you know business is changing so fast, and who knows what this company will be doing twenty years from now. Right. But that. Yeah. I wondered whether you see, I mean, you all had to pivot to quilting. Do you see a pivot coming in the future to something else? Um, not really. I mean, from our end, I mean, we, Checkers had very, very steady growth, um, even, even through the kind of downturn, um, you know, in the economy a few years back. We've really, um, I don't know, just by the processes that we're doing here. And, you know, I mean, people talk, you can talk to pretty much any shop owner, vendor of ours in the industry, and they talk about the checker website and how easy it is to use. And um, we've had steady growth. And I mean, steady, I mean, last year was very significant growth and 2019 is off to a really good start. And um, we're so busy with keeping up with what we're doing now that I don't see us pivoting anywhere. Um, you know, as far as like a pivot goes, I mean, the online retailers have really come into their own in the last three to five years. So that's been a big area of growth for us. Um, the brick and mortar quilt shop business has not decreased for us, but it's not growing as rapidly as the online retailer is for us. Um, and our international business is really, really growing for us uh, rapidly. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't see us pivoting from what okay. we're doing. Yeah, we just treat, keep trying to make you everything better, and um, you know, as far as the website goes, you know, our our customers they they can do everything there. I mean, they can access all of their past invoices and their current open orders, and you know, we offer them product suggestions based on their purchasing history. Um, you know, if they're looking at a particular item, we'll, you know, we'll tell them right there, hey, you ordered this item on January fifteenth, and you ordered ten of these, and you know, they, there's in stock icons on there. So if you're a shop owner and you don't want to wait on something or like a fabric and you're like, Hey, I need reds in my store. There's an in stock icon on our website that you can click on. And then you can just type red fabric into the search bar. It's going to bring up hundreds of red fabrics that we have in stock right now. Or you could do the same thing for batiks or anything else. So we, we invest a ton of money, um, into our technology, into our warehouse. You know, the warehouse is extremely automated it's conveyors and carousels running all over the place and i know there's nobody else in our industry that invests what checker does into the technology and in the warehouse and i think that's what we do to kind of set ourselves apart and you know keep investing and making our customers experience better Great. That sounds great. Um, well, I want to make sure we get to your recommendations and, um, you have kind of, uh, rather than crafty recommendations, kind of leisure time recommendations. And one of them is really around sports. I know you're a big sports fan. So do you want to just talk a little bit about kind of the sports that you enjoy either as a spectator or as a participant? Yeah, well, I grew up, um, playing primarily hockey and baseball my whole life. And then I actually played two years of college uh, club hockey at Miami University. So I'm a big hockey fan. Um, close, We're in the Toledo area. We're just an hour south of Detroit. So I'm a really big Detroit Red Wings fan. Um, and then when it comes to you know the sport that I guess I'm most passionate about watching, it would be college football and Ohio State. I'm a crazy, crazy Ohio State fan. Um, all the way to, you know, following who they're recruiting out of high school and everything like that. And, you know, growing up in the Toledo area, we're just, you know, 10 minutes from the Michigan border, um, where we're at is kind of the epicenter of the Ohio state Michigan rivalry. Cause, uh, Ann Arbor where Michigan's at is only 45 minutes from us in Columbus where Ohio state's at's actually about two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. So growing up, that rivalry is pretty much instilled into your brain, especially in this area. You're either an Ohio State or Michigan fan, and uh, it's it's pretty intense. <laughs> okay, got but, it. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm like not a sports fan, so I can't really relate, but I understand the passion because I do live in like Red Sox crazy mania area. So I get it because I like live around it, but I'm like not a participant in it. So, um, and then you and your, um, and your wife like to travel as well. So I know you had said you like to travel when you were in college and it sounds like you still like to travel. Have you been anywhere interesting recently? Um, I mean, recently with the kids, you know, we haven't been able to do like any international trips or anything like that. Although actually we did, uh, we did go up to Montreal just for a weekend last summer. Oh, that was nice. my first time. 
it was my first time in Montreal and that's a great city. Um, I'd never been there. Un- unbelievable food and, um, scenery and nightlife and everything. We actually, we actually got to meet up with the guys that own Camelot Cottons. Oh yeah. The fabric company yeah. based out of Montreal. So we got to go out with them and went on a hike with, uh, Phil who works up there and then went out to dinner with Steve, um, Hopped, who's the president. And, uh, that was fun. Those guys are good buddies of mine, good vendors and good buddies. Um, but my dad and I actually went in on a place in Florida together in the St. Petersburg beach area last year. And, um, the winter is so brutal here right now in Northwest Ohio that I've already been down. It was down in November. It was down in December, early January. And we were just down there last week, just trying to thaw out and warm up from, uh, from the winter up here. Oh my gosh, that sounds nice. We're going to, our schools are closed this afternoon. My kids are all coming home in like an hour because we're about to get a huge snowstorm. So Florida sounds fantastic right now. Oh yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, Brad, thank you so much for taking so much time to be on the Wall Street Apps podcast. I really enjoy talking with you. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me also. And you've been listening to the Wall Street Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshingapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. This episode of the Walshing Apps podcast was sponsored by popseo.com, who wants you to grow your creative business. Their next e-course, Start and Scale Your Etsy, begins online on April 1st. Registration's half off until then, so you can... Head over to popseo.com to check it out and also get free resources on their website. That's pop-seo.com. Thanks so much, Pop SEO. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.